Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. For new listeners, you are very welcome. And for returning listeners, thank you so much for coming back. For anybody who's new to the podcast, I'm Meg and I'm based in London in the UK. In my podcast, I talk about various strands of my creative and making practice. Not just what I make, in the broadest meaning of the word, but also why and how. You can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore between each word. And anything I mention on this podcast, you can find in show notes, which are at mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. I normally also mention that I'm on Ravelry as Meg, aka Mrs M, with a hyphen between each word. And whilst I'm still there, as a migraine sufferer, I've been using it less and less since the rebrand, like a lot of other people suffering from migraines. On a personal level, I am intrigued to see what less reliance on Ravelry will mean for my own knitting. But from a show notes perspective, access issues with Ravelry leave me in a bit of a quandary. Previously, I included Ravelry links to designers and patterns, but I'm wary of doing so now. That said, I also know that a lot of independent designers still rely on Ravelry for pattern sales as they don't have the time, energy or means to host sales on a platform of their own. As somebody who has recently set up an online shop, I completely understand this. I've therefore decided that going forward, I will link to the Instagram account of designers or their website if they have one. Most designers on Instagram have details in their profile about where to find their patterns. And even if you don't have an Instagram account, it is still possible to view other people's accounts in an internet browser. So how are you? How have you been keeping? If you're in the UK or Europe, how have you been coping with a recent heatwave? The temperatures here in London were in the mid-30s centigrade or 95 Fahrenheit for over a week, which is highly unusual for here. Worst of all, though, the night temperatures didn't really fall below the mid-twenties, or 74 Fahrenheit, which meant very little sleep. Any long-term listeners will know that I feel the cold dreadfully due to a range of system malfunction issues, hence my love for wool. That said, I like the heat even less, so I'm very glad that the southwesterlies are blowing again and I'm back in my trusty cosy cardigans. So what do I have in store today? First, I would like to talk a little about the bizarre fallout from finishing a big creative project, or rather getting to base camp on a big project. I will then go on to talk about a new knitting project that I'm swatching for, and I'll finish up with a little food preserving. So I hope you have a project to hand, and a cup of tea or a refreshing drink. And let's begin. There's been a bit of a shift in my creative life and making in recent weeks, which has definitely impacted on the normal flow of projects. At the end of June, I launched my ceramics shop. As many knitters and sewers supported the launch of this endeavour, I want to say thank you to everybody who cheered me on, bought my pottery, shared photos of my ceramics in their home, commented on the website and so on. Your support means the world to me. After the launch and a week of packing and trips to my local post office to dispatch orders, I experienced a bizarre mix of anticlimax, exhaustion and hyper-creativity. 
The anticlimax and exhaustion were entirely expected. I was aware ahead of the launch that I was calling on reserves and that there might be a fibro flare-up. Not so much because of the making itself, but because of all the other aspects, creative and practical, that went into the project. Like photographing work, learning to edit photos, learning how to style photos, ordering packaging materials, and devising and implementing an inventory and processing system that minimises mistakes when I'm having a particularly brain foggy day. It was not surprising, therefore, that I felt somewhat empty and fatigued afterwards. I think there was also a bit of emotional exhaustion too, partly because putting creative work out into the world is always scary. I experienced the same when I published the first issue of the Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet pamphlet. But I think I was also emotionally a little spent. Although objectively seen, getting this far was only a modest achievement. Personally, it felt like a massive deal. Four years ago, when I had just been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, I was struggling by on two hours of energy a day. At that time, launching a business, even a micro-nano business, would have been inconceivable to me. Even though I have a long way to go with MR Ceramic, just getting to this stage, base camp I suppose, feels like a major journey, and has left me both elated but also exhausted. Oddly enough, as fatigued as I was, I was also buzzing with creativity and ideas. And the past few weeks seem to have involved capturing shards of ideas in notebooks so I can park them, leave them to ferment and percolate for later, or action them as soon as possible. Creativity really is an odd thing. On the one hand, creative work means a lot of disciplined knuckling down with various tasks on the to-do list. On the other hand, it also involves the creative synapses buzzing and firing, taking observations and shards of the everyday, spotting connections and abstracting out patterns, rhythms, dynamics, ideas. And just as with any practice, the more we exercise it, the more responsive it is. As a result, a lot of my creative practice in recent weeks, apart from preserving the season's bounty, has involved writing a wholehearted resurgence of my original medium. As well as roughing out the scope and ideas for a couple of future bodies of work, I have also been pushing forward with issue two of the Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet pamphlet. I came up with most of the essay themes for this issue back when I was writing the first issue and in the autumn, but the sheer bizarreness of this year has definitely influenced the details in the essays. I put the writing on hold back in April to push on with the shop launch as I was aware that I was using writing as a way to put off the photography and IT gremlins. But I've started writing again and I'm now proofreading and editing the second issue before I start the layout. The theme for this second issue is mending and experimenting which have certainly been features of this surreal year. The pamphlet will contain four essays this time round. And just for clarity, I mean essays in the journalistic literary tradition rather than the academic sense. So reflective writing that explores ideas and relationships in a reasoned, considered way rather than a footnoted academic article or treatise. I'm not going to make any promises about when exactly issue two will go to print. I'm hoping it will be towards the end of September, but I'll definitely update you here and on Instagram. Also, 
encouraged by Amelia, aka Warren Words, and Lee, aka Luli underscore, I will open up pre-orders for this pamphlet once I finalise the layout. I hope you will indulge this little ramble about where my creativity has been in the past few weeks. I mulled over whether this was an appropriate place to discuss it, but I was reminded by something Katie of the Green Bean podcast said recently about how she is trying to allow herself the time to experience the feelings that go with putting a piece of work out into the world, rather than just rushing head-on into the next project. In recent weeks, I've been knitting a couple of presents, so I can't really share the details about them. But I thought I would talk instead about the swatching I've been doing for an imminent project. If you are new to the podcast, I tend to fall into the category of monogamous knitter, working on one, maximum two projects at a time. It's a mode that works for me, definitely helped by the fact that I do allow myself to start swatching for a future project once I'm over the brow of the hill with a current whip. I would like to knit the Johnson top from Susan Crawford's book called The Vintage Shetland Project. This is an all-over lace top with a short grown-on sleeve. As the name suggests, this lace top has a definite vintage feel. As I'm more of a lace than a colourwork knitter, this pattern caught my eye when Susan was showcasing her plans for this crowdfunded book. And having mulled it over for several years, I've decided to add it to my wardrobe. Last episode, I talked about my initial disappointment with the Tanach cardigan by Kate Davis. I'm happy to say that since wearing it in though, I've really fallen in love with it. And one of the reasons for this is that I really enjoy the 1930s, 40s feel of the relatively fine all-over lace pattern. Although the lace pattern of the Johnson top is very different, it ticks that lace and vintage feel too. Moreover, as most of the dresses I sew are sleeveless, I reckon this top will make a good layering piece to turn my warmer weather dresses into cooler weather dresses. So that's the reason for this imminent cast on. Why talk about the swatching though? There has recently been some talk online about the financial accessibility of certain patterns. Not so much the cost of the pattern, but rather the cost of the yarn used in the pattern. I've touched on cost and affordability in knitting before in episode 5. And Anushka, aka Sour Telling, of the Crimson Stitchery podcast also recently talked at length about knitting on a budget, and I would thoroughly recommend that episode. Not just because she has sound, practical and empowering advice, but also as the whole tone and flavour of the episode is creative and encouraging and just joyous. One of the issues that came up in the context of comments around financial accessibility was the topic of yarn substitution and the role of the designer, if any, in supporting or encouraging yarn substitution. Unsurprisingly, comments varied from the designer should suggest alternative yarns and profile the designs in more affordable yarns to I've never knit with the recommended yarn, what's the big deal, and everything in between. I'm not a knitting designer and I have no aspirations in that respect, but as I like this podcast to be informative and educational as well as just entertaining, I do like to empower knitters 
actually makers of any kind to have the courage to enjoy their craft, even if that means deviating from the recommended materials or even directions. So I did a little mental digging, tried to lay aside my default mode and put myself in other knitters' shoes. As someone who learnt to knit many decades ago, long before the invention of the internet, from patterns in a British woman's magazine whilst living in a foreign country, I learnt to yarn substitute as a child as a matter of default. I've therefore been trying to imagine what it would be like to learn yarn substitution now, particularly because kids are often fearless or less inhibited when learning something new compared to adults. I think the key thing to remember about yarn substitution is nobody is born knowing how to do it. Just like knitting, it's a skill we learn, partly by research, mostly by trial and error. In terms of research, understanding what kind of yarn is being used in the original design is just as important as looking at the tension or gauge and the yardage. I typically talk a lot about the characteristics of the materials I use, but going forward I actually want to draw that information out in the context of talking about swatching for my projects, mostly because there seems to be a bit of a blasé attitude online to swatching. Some bloggers and podcasters talk about their swatches in detail, but I get the impression that generally swatching is seen as something that geeks or perfectionists do, and I wonder whether this does a disservice to our fellow knitters. Swatches are about so much more than just tension or gauge. Arguably, that's the least interesting part of a swatch, as there is often a way to rework the mathematics of a pattern if the gauge is off. Rather, swatches are a relatively low-risk way of bridging the theoretical research and the trial and error involved in yarn substitution. Swatches allow us to work out if we like the fabric the yarn produces at the recommended gauge, or if we want to play around with the tension and needle size to produce a fabric that we prefer. If the pattern involves texture, lace or cables, a swatch will give us a feel of how well defined the texture, cable or lace looks, or whether they are getting lost in the innate texture of the yarn. If we are swatching for a colour work project, the swatch allows us to experiment with the sequence of colours to get the desired effect, be that high or low contrast. Swatches are also a great way to practice a new type of stitch, or to test a stitch combination to see if we will be able to sustain enthusiasm for it over a whole project. In my case, swatching flags up if any stitches are likely to aggravate elbow and shoulder injuries and how feasible it might be to substitute them. Importantly, a swatch can also give us a feel of how knitted fabric might wear. I follow Louise Scully, aka Woolworks approach of popping blocked swatches under my bra strap or in the waistband of my skirt to determine whether a possible wool will work next to the skin. After all, there is no point investing money and time in a big knit only to realise we don't wear the finished objects because it makes our skin crawl. Similarly, swatching allows us to work out whether we actually like working with a particular yarn before spending money on a project's quantity. So to bring all this back to the Johnson top. The pattern recommends Susan Crawford's Fenella wool. Susan developed this yarn some years ago to get the feel of the three-ply or light fingering wool that was common in the patterns of the 1930s and 40s. At 124 metres per 25 gram skein, this gives 
nearly 500 metres per 100 grams, or 550 yards per 3.5 ounces. So lighter than a four-ply or fingering weight, but with much more body than a lace weight yarn. Fenella consists of two plies and is worsted spun with a relatively low twist. It is described as 100% British wool, but I remember when it first came out, just like her Exelana wool, it was a blue-faced Leicester blue Exmoor blend. The BFL would have given it some drape, but the Exmoor has spring and bounce. As I had just over half a cone of Jameson and Smith's Shetland Heritage Naturals wool, I thought I would try this wool for the pattern. This is a yarn that Jameson and Smith created to replicate the vintage wool found in the Shetland Museum and Archives. Also, in a number of the patterns in Susan's The Vintage Shetland Project book, this yarn and Fenella are used interchangeably, admittedly in Farrell patterns, but still. Like the Fenella, the Shetland Heritage wool consists of two plies, worsted spun, with relatively low twist. The Jameson Smith wool weighs in at 110 grams per 25 gram ball, so a fraction heavier than the Fenella. It is spun from 100% Shetland wool, so it's a yarn with good structure rather than a lot of drape. But I know from a lace shawl I knit in this yarn that it has good stitch definition and also falls comfortably. So not like a merino or an alpaca, but still pleasantly. Even though I have knit with this yarn before, both in stocking stitch and lace, and therefore have a general feel of the wool's characteristics, I wanted to swatch to check out some of the issues I mentioned. I blocked the swatch, but this arguably counted as somewhere between the first and second block, as I had scaled the wool off the cone before starting to use it so I could soak out the spinning oil. That's not an essential step, but rather a personal preference. Because my overhyped sense of smell, I struggle a bit with the smell of mineral oils, so I'm happy to take the extra step of soaking the wool before I use it. This meant that the wool had already bloomed considerably before I knit with it, so the swatch blocking mostly evened out the stitches and opened up the stitch pattern. Using a 3mm needle, which is between a US 2 and 3, I achieved a fabric I really liked. One that, due to the nature of the lace, had a good mix of body and movement. As expected, the stitch definition in the lace was good. I also liked the overall shape and size of the lace in this yarn. This might seem like an odd thing, but I'm quite fussy about lace, and it's not a given that every lace pattern looks good at every size. Proportions, after all, play an important role in aesthetics. Some daintier lace patterns lend themselves better to finer yarns, while others work up better on a heavier wool. Working on this swatch, I noticed that the lace pattern used knit two together through back of loop for a left-leaning knit two together, rather than a slip-slip knit for a knit two together, possibly because the garment is a remake of a vintage pattern. I know that purling through the back of the loop really niggles my left elbow, causing no end of grief, but I was surprised to see that the knit two together through back of the loop was also causing twinges. So I carried on swatching using the slip-slip knit approach, which is much more comfortable, and whilst a purist might spot it, for me the substitution did not detract from the lace pattern. Tension-wise, my numbers are completely off. 
I got about 25 stitches to 40 rows over 10 centimeters or 4 inches rather than 33 to 36 respectively but I do love the fabric on the, this particular needle size. I also swatched on a 2.75 millimeter or US2 which brought the stitch count down to 27 or 28 and pushed the row count up to 48. It has produced a much tighter, more compact fabric, but at this tension it doesn't have the gentle drape of the first swatch. The pattern repeat for this design runs over 20 stitches. The larger the repeat is, the harder it can be to accommodate a difference in tension, but based on my preliminary calculations I think my tension would work if I went down two sizes. I will definitely have to tweak the pattern when it comes to the number of rows, but as this pattern has a relatively easy shaping, I think that might work. And a quick word on cost. I bought this comb some time ago and it cost me £28 for 500 grams, which is 2,200 metres or approximately 2,400 yards. The cost of the cones has gone up to £33, but even so, if I end up using this cone for the Johnson top, I will have got two garments for £28. Summer is typically a time when a lot of my making revolves around nurturing vegetables, getting winter crops into the garden, and one of my favourites, preserving seasonal produce and the rare gluts. And this year has been no different, except that I'm flexing my preserving muscles with different approaches. In recent years I've been keen to extend my preserving skills so I can use preserved vegetables and fruits as ingredients or side dishes rather than just turning them into jams or chutneys. Last year I started to dabble with pickling in vinegar brines and dehydrating and I was eager to build on those skills this year. I had hoped to pickle cucumbers again this year, but all my cucumber plants succumbed to a virus disease, killing off the plants before they flowered. Although I'm still smarting at the thought of not having crunchy dill cucumbers in store, I consoled myself by brining Florence fennel and beetroots instead. The beetroots are homegrown, the fennel alas not, as my garden's too dark for that. Brining with vinegar is relatively easy as long as you make sure your acidity levels are sufficiently high to kill off the microbes that could cause the vegetables to spoil. To take the edge off the acidity just enough to be palatable, I add a little sugar, but only in a ratio of about 5-6% to of the vinegar, depending on what vinegar I use. The most enjoyable part of the brining process is adding herbs and spices to taste. For the Florence fennel, I added coriander seeds, pink peppercorns and fennel leaves from the garden for a fresh, mildly aromatic licorice flavour. And for the beetroot, I used a mix of allspice, clove, black peppercorns and dried juniper berries for a more hearty, wintry feel for this robust root. I've also experimented with preserving other savoury produce in oil. As well as partially dehydrated tomatoes, which I cover in with oil, I have tried my hand at preserving bell peppers and romana peppers. It is possible to buy peppers out of season, though who knows how readily available they will be once the Brexit transition phase ends. But the rationale of storing them now is to preserve the intense flavour that comes from peppers grown in the sun, rather than in hothouses under synthetic light. 
The preserving process is remarkably simple and fuss-free and doesn't involve any particular ratios that need to be remembered, as with brining or fermenting. The trickiest thing about preserving the peppers is de-skinning them, but once they've been roasted to the point where they're just starting to char, the skin peels away easily enough. Rather than make jams this year, I opted for fruit leathers and fruit preserved in alcohol. I first experimented with fruit leathers last year when we had a glut of brambles and a gift of windfall apples. This year the greengrocer had an abundance of plums so I decided to turn some of these into leather. Although fruit leathers involve some sugar, the amount is minimal compared to jamming fruit. About one-sixth of the weight of fruit compared to an almost equal measure of sugar with jams. This year I was much more methodical in my approach, both in pouring the garnet red liquid onto the parchment and when storing the leathers. By making the leather a little thinner it dried much faster and I was able to peel the flexible sheet of fruity goodness away from the parchment. As the parchment stayed intact I decided to cut the leather and the sheets of baking parchment in half and carefully roll the leather up for storage. As well as this Moorish grown-up sweet, I also made the wonderfully named Confiture de Vieux Garçon, which roughly translates as Old Bachelor's Jam, but isn't actually a jam. What, darling? I know. Do you really need your supper now? Yeah? Is it because I'm talking about food? Sorry about that. Dante is now tucking into his dinner. He shouldn't bother us any further, but he does have appalling table manners, so you may hear snorting and slurping in the background, in which case I apologise on his behalf. So where was I? Oh yes, the old bachelor's jam. This concoction is the ultimate lazy preserve. It involves sprinkling sugar over a fruit and letting it soak in for about an hour, then simply layering the fruit in a sterilised jar and topping it up with brandy, kirsch or rum to exclude air. The idea is that you can systematically layer up the fruit as the seasons progress, but I just made a jar with the fresh produce the greengrocer happened to have in. So one jar of peaches, nectarines and sour cherries and another with plums. Once the jar is full, just seal it off and leave it for several months away from direct sunlight and start enjoying it in late autumn. The rich jewel-like colours of the fruit look very cheerful on the countertop and the mixed fruit jar in particular looks like a luxurious adult version of the endless, rather dull tins of Macedoine de fruits we had as desserts when I was a kid. There are many preserving books on the market, but I thought I would share the ones I've been using. For traditional jams, jellies and chutneys, I swear by Delia Smith's complete illustrated cookery book, The Big Black Volume, and Marguerite Patton's Jams, Preserves and Chutneys. Both these books are absolute classics. There are no pictures in the Marguerite Patton book, and despite its title, precious few in the Delia Smith one, but they are thorough and tried and tested. My other two manuals are much more recent publications, in particular Alice Fowler's Abundance and Diana Henry's Salt Sugar Smoke. Alice Fowler is a gardener and she very much writes about preserves as a way of storing seasonal gluts. I've mostly been using her book for brining, dehydrating and fermenting. 
Her focus is on explaining the mechanics and processes behind the various techniques. The book contains a good mix of recipes, but they are just there to build confidence so that you can then go on and expand on the skills gained. The book includes some handy charts, like a calendar showing the preserving year and which techniques work for which fruits and vegetables, recommended salt ratios for fermenting brine for different produce, and a useful reminder of how long to blanch different types of produce for freezing. Diana Henry's book is much more of a recipe book, with preserving recipes mostly from Europe, the Caucasus, the Middle East and North Africa. Some of the preserving methods are purely intended to enhance flavour and have only a limited shelf or fridge life, but others are intended for laying down for winter months. I've mostly been using this book for preserving in oil and alcohol. I would add that Salt Sugar Smoke does include sections on smoking and curing techniques typically used on fish and meat, so if you are a vegetarian or vegan you may not want to invest in this book. I would add that as those sections amount to less than a quarter of the book, I still think there is a lot of value in this title. I normally try to end on a high or with some inspiring gems. This time round though I'm ending on more sobering thoughts which are tangentially linked to preserving. Although I'm always wary of consumption for the sake of consumption, I like many am deeply aware of and very worried about the impact of COVID-19 on jobs and businesses. Certainly the economic news in the UK has not been great and headlines about job losses are almost a daily occurrence. A lot of large corporations are restructuring and slimming down to make themselves leaner, but small independent businesses have so little fat in their model that there is little or no scope to trim down further. The wool sector has been particularly badly hit. With the international market for wool collapsing due to lockdowns, farmers in the UK, and from what I hear elsewhere also, have seen the price of their clip plummet to pennies, to the point where it's often not even worth marketing. Wool for the hand-knitting sector is only a small subsection of a larger industry, but it's one area where the knitters amongst us can have some impact. I know I've just talked about swatching for yarn substitution in the context of the much larger issue of affordability, because knitting on a budget is nothing at all to be ashamed of. I would however also say that if you are in a position to support independent wool producers whose wool aims to pay a fairer price to shepherds and mills, now really is a time to do so. In light of my love of natural shades, I'm excited to hear that Daughter of a Shepherd's Heritage Foreply is expected back in stock in late September. I knit the Hooland Hap in this deep, rich Hebridean Zwapless blend several years ago, and it's one of my most worn shawls. The depth of the brown, think 80% bitter black chocolate, is incredibly striking, and I would love a cardigan in this wool at some point. You can find Rachel's shop online at daughterofashepherd.com. Donna Smith Designs is another small wool producer whose wool from the 2019 clip has just become available. Donna's family raised Shetland sheep on Barra in Shetland and she produces a wool called Langsund or Langsund. I'm not quite sure what the correct 
pronunciation is of that. As Donna's wool is woolen spun and has a lovely, almost chewy feeling like the crumb of a freshly baked whole grain loaf, it knits up well to both DK and worsted weight. Being able to push a DK wool with its more generous yardage to a worsted weight is an approach I often use to make projects more economical. This year there are seven natural shades, including a brooding dark brown grey shade called Clod, which I'd love to get my hands on. Donna's wool is available at donnasmithdesigns.co.uk. Whatever your preference is where yarn is concerned, I would say if there is any petty cash left in the piggy bank, please do consider supporting small wool producers. Or for that matter, dyers who produce beautiful colours often from their kitchen or tiny studios. Or local yarn shops whose first-hand know-how and community-minded events we have missed during lockdown. And if knitting or crochet are not your thing, the same thoughts apply to small independent haberdasheries, art shops, writers and publishers, musicians, small eateries. As support mechanisms that governments introduced during lockdown are now being wound up, now really is a time to support and preserve what we value, the businesses that play a role in enhancing our well-being. As there have been virtually no physical festivals this year, whether it's yarn or sewing festivals, gigs, theatrical or literary events, I would love it if listeners would share a recommendation for a yarn, a little craft shop, a writer, a musician, an artist that you think fellow listeners might be interested in. Maybe something or somebody you discovered during lockdown or a local to you artist. Please do leave a comment on the Instagram post accompanying this podcast or on the show notes over on the blog. Well, that's it for today. Before I sign off, I would like to say a quick heartfelt thank you to everybody who has bought me a virtual coffee. I always forget to mention coffee as I'm really rubbish at the practical aspects of the podcast. A few friends have asked me whether I would consider using Patreon so they could support the podcast. And for a whole variety of reasons, that has never felt right. But I did instead set up a coffee account. For anyone who doesn't know what coffee is, and coffee is spelt K-O hyphen F-I, it's a platform that allows people who enjoy creators' creative output to show their support and appreciation by purchasing a virtual coffee for a few pounds on an ad hoc basis. Please don't feel you need to support the podcast. I enjoy putting it together and I love the conversations that flow from it. If, however, you do want to support the podcast via coffee, all contributions are very gratefully received as they help cover hosting fees. I hope to be back with another episode soon, but As I'm currently working towards a restock of my ceramic shop and finalising issue two of the pamphlet, life will be at sixes and sevens for a bit. In the meantime, the best place to follow my general making journey is Instagram. And if you are interested in or just plain nosy about the pottery, you can check me out on my ceramics Instagram account, which is m.r.keramic, K-E-R-A-M-I-K, or on my website, megroper.co.uk. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy many pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be. 